invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll study verses 1 through 7. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is, of course, an epistle, that is to say, a letter to be circulated in the midst of the church. An epistle was usually written not just as a casual communication, like I would write a letter to you, or you would write a letter then back to me to converse about the regular goings-on of life, but rather a letter with pastoral weight. Epistles intend to instruct And so as Paul writes to the church in Rome, that is his goal. His goal is to instruct the mind and the heart of this church and to bring them into further conformity with the truth and the hope and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of God. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we take up yet another book of the Holy Scriptures, we pray that you would make it profitable to our minds and our souls. Lord, you are wise in all the things that you do. O Lord, in the giving of Scripture, in the ordering of the Scriptures, in the ordering sovereignly of the lives of your creatures. O Lord, we pray that you would give us benefit. O Lord, that you would help us to receive this word with gladness. That you would protect us from error, O Lord, within or without. That, Lord, you would conform us into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. The letter to the Romans, it is undoubtedly one of the most famous books of the Bible, and certainly it is one of the most famous books of the New Testament. When Christians have read this throughout the years, and commentators and pastors and lay people as well, they have enjoyed it, I think, for one of its great hallmarks, and that is It's densely theological substance. This is a book packed with things to think about. 
things to meditate upon, things to instruct us, things to correct us, things to challenge us. And it's sometimes readers of this famous letter of the Apostle Paul have read it and have in themselves or even in their writing called this to be a book primarily that gives a systematic or a biblical theology to the Bible. And while I think this is a book jam-packed with both systematic and biblical theology, I think that misses the point of it a little bit. You see, if you were to come into my office in my home and look at the bookcases that I have, it wouldn't take you very long to understand that I love historical and systematic theology. The majority of the books that I have in my office regard this. Those books are wonderful. They can tell us a whole world of eternal truths. They can take us deep and they can take us high. But they're topical, ultimately. They're things we go to. They're like mines where we go to receive gold and jewels. But this is a letter to a church. This isn't a tome of systematic theology or biblical theology. This is a pastor writing to Christians. He's writing to a church and one that is a divided church. A church that's troubled within itself. And his aim is to help them grow in Christ and to grow in sanctification. And so as we begin this book, I want us to consider his greeting, this apostolic greeting under two points which I think are fairly clearly derived from it. In verses 1 through 5, let us consider the chain of apostolic authority. 1 through 5, the chain of apostolic authority. And then in verses 5 through 7, the mission of apostolic ministry. The mission of apostolic ministry, verses 5 through 7. As we come to this book, it's important to understand that as Paul wrote this, he is either preparing for or within what has been called his third missionary journey where Paul is going and he's telling about Christ, where he's taking funds from one church to another, where he's teaching, where he's also engaged for the sake of his own well-being and putting food on his own table and the making of tents so that he might labor without being a burden to those to whom he's going to. And whenever he writes this letter, he writes it to a church that it seems he has not yet visited. To the Romans, which it's fairly likely he knows a number of people within their church, but to a church that he hasn't visited and sat in worship or preached or personally encouraged face to face. Rather, he is writing as an outsider who has a relationship to them spiritually. And what relationship is that? Well, it is the relationship Paul has to them according to his office. And you say to me, well, pastor, what office does the apostle Paul have? And I would say, there it is. He's an apostle. He says this in the first line of verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle. And you've heard me teach over the past year, and we've had many conversations about the offices of the church. And you may know that according to what we've done in the church, apostle was not one of them, was it? We talked about the office of elder. We talked about the office of deacon. And so then, what am I talking about? The office of the apostle or the apostleship. Well, that is the office that the apostle Paul had. And in a moment, we'll discuss exactly the breadth of what it is to be an apostle, but I want to begin by saying that the office of the apostle was for the establishment of the early church. That is, to bring the church from its infancy into a stable place. One of the things that were assigned to the office of apostle was the prophetic work of teaching That is to say, the giving of Scripture, as we have here in the book of Romans. And some of you may say, I don't know, does the New Testament pretend to do that with the writings that it gives from the apostolic sources? And I would say, yes. I would point you to texts like 2 Timothy 3.16 and others. That's not the point of the sermon today, but it is to say that in the early church, the work of the apostle was a work of inspired office. Jesus gave to his church apostles who were sent with a mission to see the church established and nourished within the world. So the first point of our text, the chain of apostolic authority. Because again, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, a church that he is not acquainted with. And I think you can understand this quite clearly. If you had an issue, it's a family issue within the congregation here at Covenant Fellowship Church and somebody pretended to write a letter to deal with the problems that we have, yet you don't know them, you would ask the simple question, on what authority should I listen to you, right? Who are you to me? Who am I to you? What right do you have to speak into our circumstance, our situation, our division, our church. So that's where Paul begins. He establishes a chain of apostolic authority, if I can give it that kind of title. The first thing that Paul does, whenever he establishes the reason why the church ought to listen to anything that he says, is it is because of his call. Or his calling. The call of Christ on his life and on him within the church. In verse 1, Paul begins with these words. Paul, a servant, one translation says, a bondservant, yet another, and even another, a slave. Paul, a servant, slave, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. You see, whenever Paul begins his letter and establishes his authority to give them a reason why to listen to them, he points outside of himself immediately. Yes, the first word is his name, but everything else points to someone else. His calling is to be an apostle. 
And you, again, you know, we've already talked about this a few moments ago. What is an apostle? How, how is that described? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of insight regarding it. It's that first word that he ascribes to himself. It means to be a servant. It means to be a slave. To be a bond servant, someone held in good faith and relationship with another. Paul is saying that is who he is to Jesus Christ. He's an inferior to Christ, his superior. He is someone who is about the ministry and the will and the business of someone greater than himself. He is called to be an apostle by Jesus. These three words that he uses regarding the calling, he uses kletos, apostello, aphorizo in the Greek language. Again and again and again, they characterize this relationship that he has to Jesus. The relationship where he is a servant about his master's business. Well, he's not just about the business on a farm or in the household, but rather he is one sent specifically to a task. He was called to be one sent out, apostello, to be pushed out, to be sent out on a mission. That's the way it's described. To be one set apart, aphorizo, with a single ministry, a single task, and that is for the gospel of God. You see, one of the things we have to pay attention to is that whenever Paul begins his letter and he speaks to them, everything he says regarding himself points to another. Paul is saying to them, any authority that I have amongst you is derived authority. It's not authority within myself, but the authority of another person. The authority of the master of a house, the lord of an estate within his own kingdom or rule or power. That's the authority. And that's pressed upon Paul. He's saying it's not about my business. It's not about what I think. It's not about what I heard. It's not about how intelligent I am or how original I can be. It's about his business in you. He's the one that sent me. Any authority that I have, it comes from him. I'm not about my own service. I'm little more than a slave bound to a master. That's the foot he begins upon. That any authority that he has as an apostle is simply the authority that Christ has placed upon his shoulders. To do the work that Christ has appointed. Now if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, and this morning may be your introduction to him, he was a profoundly educated man. Theologically educated, classically educated. If you read any of his letters, and as we continue to study the book of Romans, you'll find about Paul that he is, as we would say, a man of letters. If he were to hold an ancient degree, undoubtedly it would be a doctorate or three. A brilliant man. For my own, I would say, as I've read ancient authors, several of them, I would say Paul stands out above them as one of... Probably one of the most intellectually developed men of the ancient world. Is that where Paul begins? No. 
If he is anything, if he is any man, he is only Christ's man. And any of his ministry is the ministry that Christ would set him to and call him to and chain him to and support him within so that he might carry out the will of his master that is Jesus Christ. The first aspect of the chain of apostolic authority, his calling from Christ. But then second in the chain of apostolic of uh, apostolic authority has to do with his message. It's one thing to say that somebody comes from a master and has the master's work to do, but then the message that he bears. Whose message is it? Is it just a message that he comes up with? Now think of this for a moment. A company may send out a salesman and say simply, here's your task, sell these things, do it by any means necessary, right? In fact, I think if you've ever been sold anything, you've experienced at least a piece of this. And you may come out with one or the other different view of whatever it is they're trying to sell you. And oftentimes it is simply the question, not whether the guy is a salesman or that he comes from a company, but is what he's selling you true? Is the message true? And so what Paul says to them regarding it is that his message, that thing that he's been set apart and called to, is nothing less than the gospel of God. The good news. We know this word, the Evangelion, the good news. Now this is a word that is full of meaning, isn't it? Today in the world we live in, this idea of evangelicalism that has as its root the Evangelion, it seems to have diminished to something that's a vague uh, political or philosophical ideal, but biblically into the church, it must mean the fullness of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You could say it in this way. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It's as simple as that. But then also, obviously, we could take this idea of gospel and make it so much larger, at least large enough to fill 66 books of the Bible. What is it? Well, it is hope for the mourner that they will not mourn forever. It is hope for the sufferer, that they will not suffer forever. It is hope for the dying, that even if they die, they will yet live again. It's hope for the one that is in anguish, with enemies from without, or enemies in the heart, the sins that constrain and torment the person. These things are not forever, but these things are passing, and these things are something that we could be redeemed from because of the death of Jesus Christ. And so whenever Paul says that his message is the message of the gospel of God, he's saying an enormous thing, especially because he's saying it to the church. He's saying to them, I'm coming to bring you a message of hope and grace and mercy that regards the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners. That's quite simple, isn't it? What am I selling you? I'm not selling you anything, and it's certainly nothing new. It's just the gospel. Any authority that my message has, it only has the authority of what you've already received, what you have already hoped in, the gospel of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Why is this important? 
Because again, it is Paul saying to them, it's not because of my intelligence. It's not because of who I think I am or who you think I am that you should listen to me. It's not that I have a a new, novel method of communicating. It is because I'm communicating the gospel of God, the hope that is offered through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's His message. It's His message. If you would receive anything that I would say, it is only because the things that I say are the transforming gospel of God. The second link in a chain of apostolic authority, the gospel. The unified gospel that agrees with the scripture. Again, Paul deriving even the authority of his message from something outside of himself. But then thirdly, Paul speaks about his authority coming from the person of Christ. Call from Christ, message of the gospel of Christ. But now the authority of the person of Christ You see, we've established this idea that he is a bondservant or a slave under a master. That's fine, we get that well enough. But what about the character of the master, right? You're telling me you have this authority from him, but why should I care about him? And, you know, the obvious hope is that every Christian wouldn't really have that question, but but Paul anticipates it. And he sets for them a Christ in three parts. A Christ clear and a Christ full of power and a Christ eternal. In verse 2, he points to the Christ of the Scriptures. The long-anticipated Messiah that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16. The 89th Psalm, the 132nd Psalm. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34. This Messiah that's been promised for not just years but hundreds of years who's been hoped upon even in shadows this promised one the one who is coming and promised to set his people free it's in that one the one which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures And you see, he adds authority upon authority. There is, as it were, authority understood from a doctrine of Scripture. This is the Word of God, after all. This is God's self-revelation. It bears up all of the authority of the God of heaven regarding God the Son and flesh. If there's any authority in his message, it is because this is the long-anticipated Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. All of Scripture points to Him. Again, it's His ministry, it's His mission that He's about. In verse 3, He continues to describe the person of Christ, and He describes Him as the Son descended from David. That's one thing to have somebody who is the master of a house, or master of servants, or slaves, or however, maybe a, a local ruler a mayor or something of this sort. But it's an entirely different thing to talk about the authority of a king. And whenever Paul points to Jesus being the son descended from David, that's what he's saying. At the one who sent him, his authority is royal. And like a king, he has a right to rule over his people. 
because He provides for them and He takes care of them. And their provision and their defense. You know that Jesus? You know the one who marked all the way down His family line, one after another, lineally, from His father, David, the man of promise, the king who was seated upon the throne, to whom it was told that He shall never lack for a man to sit upon His throne. I'm about His business. A herald of the king. The apostle is nothing but a mouthpiece of someone much, much greater. Verse 4. He goes on and describes Christ in even more terms. He says, one who was declared to be the Son of, of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Well, it seems like Paul has a very clear picture of Jesus, doesn't it? Certainly a very clear picture of what the church claims about Jesus today, even in this earliest period of the church. Son of David in the fullness of humanity and Son of God in the fullness of power and divinity. And he says this was evidenced how? By the supernatural work of His resurrection by the power of of the Spirit of Holiness, the Holy Spirit. That's a significant claim. The whole of the Christian religion rests within it and relies upon it and hinges only in its proposition. The Son of God in power. That's whose business I'm about. This little man, Paul, a servant of that Master. When I speak, it's not on my authority, but of the authority of the long-awaited Messiah, the King of God's people, the Son of God. Now, writing to Christians, that ought to have gotten some attention. After all, it's His handshake. Why should you listen to me? Because I have a great Lord. And I'm bringing His good news to you. A people who profess to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes people ask the question, where is the apostolic authority today? Especially they ask a Presbyterian. Presbyterians, you believe in two offices, the elder and the deacon. Where is the apostolic office? Well, we mentioned it a moment ago that the apostolic office was for the establishment of the church and the giving of Scripture, right? The apostolic office remains here. The derived authority of anything that's said from any true pulpit or any true minister is not within himself or in his calling, but only here. In the revealed ministry of God through which He established His church and the Scriptures. Holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote this. They were called apostles. And we still have the full access of their ministry contained within the Scriptures. The Scriptures bear up for us the apostolic authority. They tell us 
what we should believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And these letters intended to settle disputes within the church, settle confusion in the heart of God's people, whether it is about doctrine or about interpersonal relationships. The Scriptures speak with the authority of Christ. That's why we should listen to them. And submit to them. And check everything by them. And let our lives be formed after them. Secondly, in our passage of Scripture is the question of the ministry of, or the mission of the apostolic ministry. Right? I mentioned this just a moment ago, that there were these two parts, the chain of apostolic ministry, the mission of apostolic ministry. And if you continue to read, after all, we are studying verses 1 through 7. In verses 5 through 7, we find this. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul, when he's describing his work, his authority, he says, through whom, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. And you see here he's describing his ministry. In his mission, the thing that's his goal. If you were to say, what's the purpose of the whole of the book of Romans? A lot of people, they'll describe it in ten different ways. Just read any commentary. In fact, a whole lot of them just give you kind of a a buffet. Just pick pick your own, right? But here in verse 5, it seems that Paul just makes it clear, at least in some sense, that there's one great big ministry that he's aiming at. One big purpose. This is... This thing, this idea of bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. The obedience of faith. And you may ask the question, are you sure, Pastor? I mean, it seems like a passing comment. And really, what does this even mean, the obedience of faith? And You know, I, I, I can't labor it for the time we have this morning, but I just point you to chapter 16. Verse 26, as he closes his gospel. The last two verses there, verse 26, he he puts the bow back upon it. The idea of the obedience of faith that he was aiming at in the whole of his book. And I want to pursue this just for a few moments to describe to you what I think the obedience of faith is and why Paul is even concerned with it in the church of Rome. You see, what we've done for the last portion of the sermon is we've studied how Paul labors the point of his derived authority. And you may say, well, all right, that's got lots of parts. It seems nice, but it's a little bit overbearing, isn't it, Pastor? It seems like Paul could have just said, hey, I'm an apostle, and then here's the message, right? Well, yes, of course. But he makes his point most strongly because he's got hard things to say. It's because he's writing to help believers who are in disobedience to their professed faith. 
You see, I mentioned earlier that this was a divided church, and you may not know the full history of this, but frankly, who does but God alone, but, but this was a church divided. And why was it divided? The church in Rome was a diverse church. We know a thing or two about diverse churches, don't we? And the tensions that comes from diversity. I think we do. You see, this church was a church made up of Jewish believers. It was made up of Gentile believers. And it was located where? In the city of Rome. The seat of Roman power and authority secularly. It was a church where you had those who had a family line that could be dated all the way back well into the early days of the people of God and the people of Israel. These converted Jews, people who were of different tribes of the people of Israel, who were circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, people who had kept the law, who all their lives had spent each day memorizing the Scriptures, who knew how to speak Hebrew, write Hebrew, understand Hebrew, because they were Hebrews. The Word of God was given to them. They were a different sort of people, especially upon the earth, and definitely different than a Gentile Roman. A Greek speaker. The possibility of a barbarian with a different tongue and a different nationality. Maybe an ancient Celt or an ancient German or maybe an ancient Swabian or Bavarian or however. A Gentile people. This catch-all term that means just all the other sort of people in the world. And these people were drawn together to very different sorts of folk under one heading, and that is the heading that is Jesus Christ. And faith in Him. Two entirely different worldviews brought into submission to Jesus. And you say, well, yeah, I can get it. I can get where, you know, if you've got Jewish Christians that have grown up in this way and you've got these Gentilic Christians of every sort of different nation and tongue among, among the tongues and nations of the earth that come together called to belong to Jesus Christ, verse 6, you can have tension. Well, they did. And it was doctrinal tension. It was questions about law and gospel. And if you read chapters 12 through 15, which maybe, Lord willing, we'll get to, we'll see it. Just look ahead. Paul is talking again and again and again about how these Christians are acting toward one another, and it all is based upon some crossing their arms and saying, you know, I don't know if we can sit at table together. I get that you're a Christian. <laughs> you're really a Gentile. You don't follow the dietary laws and are you really, are you sure you're right? I mean, aren't you supposed to be strictly following the rules and the ceremonial law? And it's because of their doctrine. The things they profess to believe don't accord with the things that they do. They're confused people. Law gospel divisions. Maybe even the question of the free offer of the gospel itself. That's a big question. Is Christ freely offered by faith to anyone who would believe? Period. End. That's the only thing necessary? We would say absolutely, certainly, 100%. Amen. That is the gospel itself. To any who believe, he's given the right to become sons and daughters. Right? But that was a question and a question of division. The larger question of justification by faith alone, right? And in the history, what we read is that there was such division in the church that at one point, the Christians were fighting amongst themselves to that uh, the Roman magistrate says, you know what, Jewish Christians, why don't you just kind of leave the city for a little while until you calm down, and if you could be reconciled, you can come back in. 
It's a big issue. Other people had to step in into church business and try to calm people down who are fighting amongst themselves. And it seems that Paul has heard this from a distance. We don't know how Paul has heard it. We understand that Paul writes lots and lots of letters. He has lots of friends that travel to encourage him. But here, he is writing to help these Christians. These Christians who show themselves to be living out of accord with the things that they say they believe. Because if you say that you believe the gospel, then you have to believe in free grace. You have to believe in the free offer of the gospel. You have to believe in the reality that Jesus Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it for us. You have to believe these things. And Paul, whenever he's listening to and hearing about the division amongst the Romans, he's simply saying, you guys don't live like the things you say you believe. I'm writing to you to bring about the obedience of the faith that you would live changed and transformed and informed by the things you say you believe. That theological truth would not just be propositional philosophy, but real, moral, living instruction and hope. That thoughts, words, deeds change. That's why he's writing to them. So that people from the outside would say, yeah, I see what you mean about the faith you proclaim. You live a life of obedience changed by it. It's a strange thing to think about, the obedience of the faith, but Christians, don't we all struggle with this? I do. I propose theology that if my heart was able to grasp would radically change me in every way. Would change the way I experience anxiety, worry, strife, division, work, rest, disagreement, joy even. How I experience joy. The obedience of the faith is for me, and I would wager also for you a thing that you're constantly pursuing. This idea that the things that are in your mind, that they can make it just the, what is it, 11 inches between brain and heart, right? That we wouldn't just profess a high and lofty religion, but that it would come to subdue us and change us and transform us and sanctify us. And after all, isn't that what true doctrine really is? Powerful? Truth that cuts to the very depth of who we are? Of course it is. And I think it could well be said that any doctrine that doesn't change and transform the life of a person, it is only understood in part, certainly not in whole. You see, this book, this letter to the Romans, is an enormous challenge to the Christians not to simply fill their head with right doctrine, but to inform their heart to right practice. To teach them what to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. You see, it's not just an empty book of 
dusty old theology that tickles the mind. It is a book of living truth that ought to change our lives. And it's my prayer that in the coming weeks as we continue to study this letter from Paul, that we would become a people brought into obedience of the faith that we profess. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teaching. Father, we ask for your help. Lord, for your subduing grace. Lord, that we who are loved of God and called to be saints, that Lord, we would live like it. That we would treat each other like we actually are your children. And that we actually do have hope and a truly resurrected Lord who has been expected from of old to free His people from the tyranny of sin. But Father in heaven, build up our church. O Lord, heal our division. Heal the rifts in our personalities and the rifts in our spiritual life. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.